welcome to COG, where we discuss current issues in women's health. This week on COG, we talk to Professor Adam Balin, a reproductive endocrinologist from Leeds in the UK, about polycystic ovarian syndrome. Then in Journal Club, we assess three offerings from the recent literature. My name is Rachel Nugent. I'm an obstetrician and gynaecologist from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Part of the reason for our delay in recording is there's been a lot of action locally for us. Abortion has been decriminalised in Queensland, our service has just moved to the electronic medical record, and I've just had a baby. Uh, so thanks to our listeners and our guests who've been waiting patiently for the podcast um, while I've been busy uh, gestating. First up, let's talk to Professor Adam Balin, who I caught up with at the Renskog Annual Scientific Meeting held in Adelaide last year. Adam is a professor who is extremely active working clinically and in research in PCOS, endocrinology and infertility, and paediatric and adolescent gynaecology. Thanks for joining us on COG today, Adam. It's a pleasure. So you spoke yesterday about PCOS. You made the comment that there's probably some prenatal uh, and intrauterine factors that influence the development of PCOS in women. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Well, it's been an ongoing area of research for a number of years now, uh, not, of, not of mine, but various groups around the world have looked at what's known as prenatal androgenization. So um, as the female fetus is developing in her mother's uterus, the uh, exposure of the fetus to hormones can actually have a major influence on the future development of the ovaries and the relative balance of the uh, of those hormones will obviously influence how the ovaries work in the future. Um, there are a number of factors. Most most important is probably testosterone. Uh, anti-malarian hormone is an important hormone that, that uh, is essential not only for the development of the ovaries but the follicles and, and how they behave. So it's an active area of research. Um, perhaps more importantly is just considering preconception health for... Um, all women really, but in particular those women with polycystic ovary syndrome who may, may need treatment to help them to ovulate, uh, it's important that they have uh, good preconception health, uh, that their nutrition has been uh, looked at, that, that they're the correct weight for their height, because all of these factors can then have an influence on the uh, development of the baby within her uterus. And we know that in the way the baby develops in the womb can have a lifelong effect on that baby's future health, both through their childhood and into adult life, mm. whether it's a female baby or a male baby. Yeah, so having an understanding uh, of the way these factors might influence ovarian development in particular, particularly, there's no sort of different advice we give to people. It's the same standard periconceptual advice. Yes, yes, essentially. Um, So you talked quite a bit about a new evidence-based guideline for the assessment and management of polycystic uh, ovary syndrome. What was quite profound for me, though quite obvious, is that a range of practitioners will see these women, uh, you know, over the course of their lives. You mentioned people like GPs, obviously obstetricians and gynecologists, dermatologists, endocrinologists. Um, So it's a really important condition for there to be some evidence-based guidelines on. Was this the first time that, you know, really significant bodies got together and released a guideline? Um, It's probably the first time that 
such a comprehensive guideline has been written that deals with the whole spectrum of polycystic ovary syndrome from its diagnosis, the way it appears during adolescence, and all the various ways that it can affect women with respect to uh, their general health, their reproductive health, skin problems such as unwanted hair growth and acne, and also the increased risk for metabolic problems, in other words, the development of type 2 diabetes, lipid abnormalities. So it's a massive guideline. There have been a number of uh, previous guideline groups um, that have met over the last 15 years or so, but this for the first time has brought together um, 37 societies, I think, from around the world, about 70 specialists, and we uh, were convened a couple of years ago. We've had a number of meetings, and together we've synthesized uh, this massive guideline. It's been led by Helena Teed from Monash, and Professor Rob Norman here in Adelaide has been the chair of the group. So it's really been very much an Australian-led initiative uh, but a true international collaboration um, and it's a truly impressive piece of work so I've been uh, honoured to be a part of it. Yeah, it certainly is uh, very comprehensive and I will put a link to it um, in our website. It was co-published in three different journals. Three journals, Fertility, Sterility, Human Reproduction and Clinical Endocrinology. So again, I think that's fairly unique to get the co-publication just uh, this summer. Yeah. Sorry, summer for the summer, summer for Europe, winter for you. <laughs> winter for us. Um, uh, so, uh, within that, you talked about the change. So, the Rotter- Rotterdam criteria are the they still stand the yes. traditional yes. way that we yes. um, diagnose polycystic ovarian syndrome. But that was quite a breakthrough, actually. Rotterdam. I was there in Rotterdam in two thousand. You mentioned that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, it was very interesting, actually, because for, for the first time, it put ultrasound on the map. Um, and it also recognised the fact that PCOS is a true syndrome, so it's a, um, a, a constellation of signs and symptoms and features that can vary from person to person, that can change over a woman's lifespan as well. So it's not one size fits all, and you don't need to have every feature to make the diagnosis. So Rotterdam took a very sort of pragmatic approach in, in mm. looking at the conditions to offer women um, an opportunity to have their symptoms treated without having to be pigeonholed into one particular category. Mm. And I think that's the key thing with PCOS. You, you have to look at an individual's particular needs, and those needs may vary over time. So a younger woman with irregular periods may be really hassled by the long gaps between her periods, and her periods may be very heavy when they occur. When she's a little bit older, it'll be the fertility problems that are more more of an issue for her. Mm. So you, again, you have to uh, tailor the the management to suit the individual's needs. Mm. And it is a, a condition that uh, traverses a lifespan. Yes. And I guess it, as gynecologists, we have you know that's one of the great things about gynecology is that we have that opportunity to work with women from being adolescent yes. through their childbearing years. 
Uh, and then they come back with their daughters. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yet to experience yeah, that, yeah. but <laughs> I, I hear it's a highlight. Um, so the important thing you mentioned with regards to the Rotterdam criteria was the change in the ultrasound criteria. So the new criteria suggests uh, more than 20 follicles versus the traditional Rotterdam of 12 follicles. Yeah. Why, why has that occurred? Uh, it's not that the ovaries have, have more follicles, it's just we're better at looking at them. So uh, in Rotterdam, we were using data from the eight, from the 1980s to 1990s, because, of course, in Rotterdam, we got together in 2003, and I was actually the first author on that ultrasound paper, so it was old evidence then. I remember when transvaginal ultrasound scanning came in, mm. in the in round, that was around about 1989, 90. So, you know, prior to that, it was just transabdominal scanning. Now, the resolution is so much better, we, we can pick up these tiny follicles because they're just a few millimeters across. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a really important change. The other commonly used test uh, that you mentioned was AMH. So what's the role of AMH in the diagnosis of PCOS? AMH is a marker for those little follicles, so it's a good good test of a woman's ovarian reserve. And so we use it very commonly in the fertility clinic in order to um, help predict how many eggs we may get during an IVF cycle, for example, and how fertile those eggs may be. Because women with polycystic ovaries have a high number of these little follicles, uh, they usually have much higher levels of AMH compared with women with normal ovaries. However, there is no consensus yet on what the cutoff should be. Um, we see high levels in women with polycystic ovaries and even higher level levels in women with polycystic ovary syndromes. In other words, the ovaries plus symptoms. Mm. Uh, but there is no international consensus. So I would say AMH is a useful marker, but it can't yet be used to make the diagnosis. So it's still very much an area of evolving science. Yes, indeed, yes, yeah. yeah. You were just mentioning individualizing treatment for women because yes. it, it really depends on, on you know the, the expression of the symptoms associated with their condition. And you had some interesting distinctions around uh, a slim phenotype of polycystic ovarian syndrome uh, versus uh, when obesity is a component of polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yes. Um, I was hoping you could kind of explain the, the differences between those two phenotypes okay. and how that affects... So, I mean, I, I, again, I think there are lots of different routes to how women uh, develop polycystic ovary syndrome. And so um, there can be various problems that may occur in the hypothalamic pituitary axis or actually down within the ovary itself. So there's, there's quite a lot of, of variation. Slim women with polycystic ovary syndrome uh, usually have an elevated LH secretion from the pituitary and it's LH that stimulates the ovaries to overproduce testosterone. Testosterone is the precursor for estrogen so you can't make estrogen without having testosterone first uh, and so LH stimulates testosterone from the fecal cells in the ovaries that then should get converted to estrogen uh, in the follicles, the follicle grows. Women who are overweight, and in fact men who are overweight as well, have high circulating insulin concentrations, um, and that's because people who are overweight tend to have abnormalities in the way the body sees insulin. They develop insulin resistance, so the muscle 
is less receptive to insulin, there's a problem with the insulin receptors in muscle cells so that muscle doesn't take up glucose efficiently and the pancreas produces more and more insulin to try and overcome this resistance in the, resistance in the muscle cells, which is why overweight people tend to have high circulating insulin levels um, and inefficient metabolism. The interesting thing about the ovary is that it sees insulin in a different way to the way that muscle sees insulin. The receptor mechanism is different in the ovary, so the ovary does not become insulin resistant. In fact, the ovary over-responds in, in response to the insulin, which also acts, we sometimes say, as a cogonatotrophin. It works alongside LH to stimulate the fecal cells to overproduce testosterone. So that's why women with high circulating insulin levels have even higher testosterone levels. Uh, in addition, insulin suppresses sex hormone binding globulin production by the liver. So SHBG carries testosterone around in the circulation, mops up the testosterone. Incidentally, that's how the contraceptive pill works to suppress testosterone levels because the, the estrogen pill causes SHBG levels to rise just as they rise during pregnancy as well. Mm. Um, so insulin suppresses SHBG, so it amplifies the um, free androgen levels. So do we expect more hirsutism um, yes. in obese yeah. women with PCOS? Yes, indeed. You yeah, right. You also mentioned some ethnic variations yes. in PCOS. So what's the impact of race on PCOS and its expression? Um, there are big ethnic variations in a number of different ways. So um, the hair follicle um, behaves differently in different populations. So certainly in Europe we see that Mediterranean populations and Middle Eastern populations who have darker skin and dark hair tend to have much more in the way of hirsutism. Whereas if you look in the Far East at the Japanese or Chinese women, for example, with high circulating testosterone levels, often don't express much in the way of hirsutism. Mm. So you can see big ethnic variations. But I think the most profound differences we see are in the metabolic differences. So there are certain populations that are more predisposed to developing insulin resistance. Um, I'm not entirely sure why this is, but I think it's essentially because of the, 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 the so-called thrifty genotypes. I don't know if you've heard mm, of that. Yep. So basically the notion is that women who become underweight don't have the nutrition to sustain a pregnancy, so they become amenorrheic. And historically, as a human race, we've been exposed to famine, not plenty. Mm. It's only the last 50 or 60 years or so that there's been plenty of food and we lead a more sedentary lifestyle. But historically, there have been certain populations that have been more exposed to famine um, and therefore have benefited from having genes that preserve body weight in times of famine. Our genes have been with us for many thousands of years and those genes are still there and they now conspire against us mm. in times of plenty. And those who have those genes, the so-called thrifty genotype, are more likely to gain weight, find it harder to lose weight. They're more likely to develop insulin resistance. 
And if they're male, they'll become diabetic, they'll have a heart attack in their 50s and 60s. If they're female, they'll develop polycystic ovary syndrome in their 20s and 30s. Mm. So which groups are particularly at risk for the thrifty genes? Um, well, we see it a lot in the South Asian population in the UK. Mm. Um, and by that you mean just so we're yes, using so the same terminology, so Indian, India, Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka yes, Bangladesh. Bangladesh, so that's uh, Southern Asia rather than East, Eastern East Asia. Asia. Yeah. Yes. Um, but there's been, uh, I know there's been work in, in the indigenous population here in Australia, um, in uh, the United States, looking at the... Uh, um, black Afro-Caribbean population as well. So you do see quite big, mm. yeah, profound differences. Yeah. Um, so we should talk a little bit about management now. I think one of uh, the big, uh, I guess, changes for this new guideline um, that came out of it for me certainly was the attention to psychological factors such as anxiety, depression, body image concerns. Yeah. What's the best management of these? That's a big question. I think first an understanding, an understanding of the profound way that uh, the symptoms of polycystic ovary syndrome can affect a woman's quality of life, uh, being cognizant of that and having the ability to try and provide support, um, which I have to confess as a fertility specialist we're probably not very good at. Um, you know, we have nurses and counsellors and psychologists who are there. Um, and they take over. You know, we deal with the sort of pragmatic fertility management, uh, but it's important to ensure that we have a full spectrum of support available in our in our clinic. So that's when the specialist nurses and the psychologists and counsellors come in. Yeah. So using a team approach yes, exactly. to managing yeah, the condition. Yeah, yeah. Um, it certainly seems like there's a lot of parallels with with pelvic pain. Yeah, sure. um, uh, and just getting that holistic approach yeah. to care. And it's important also when thinking about lifestyle because it's easy to tell somebody to lose weight and eat healthily and do some exercise, but it's harder to achieve in practice. And so, um, and particularly for those women who are overweight with PCOS who may have hirsutism, they may feel inhibited going to a gym or a swimming pool. Um, and so, you know, support in that way is really important. Um, so we might just skip to our last question because I know uh, there's a session to get to. Um, when we talk about, I guess in terms of medications and things, when yeah. we talk about uh, the assessment and treatment for infertility, you made some uh, interesting comments about first line. What, what's the first line yeah. management for yeah. infertility? Well, traditionally, after considering you know, lifestyle management, we have... Uh, used oral clomiphene citrate, which works well to stimulate ovulation, but actually in recent times we've realised that letrozole, which is an aromatase inhibitor, so it actually acts on the conversion of testosterone to oestrogen within the ovaries and actually preserves the feedback between the ovaries and the pituitary and hypothalamus, so you're more likely to get the release of a single egg in a more normal hormone environment than you get with clomiphene. And so the chance of having an ongoing pregnancy is increased, the risk of multiple pregnancies reduced, and it also appears that the risk of miscarriage may be reduced as well. So letrozole is now recommended as first-line therapy. It's an oral agent at a dose of either 2.5 milligrams or 5 milligrams, 
taken pretty much in the same way as clomiphene starting on day two of the cycle for five days. Um, we tend to provide ultrasound monitoring, but you don't need to, so not everybody has access to ultrasound. Ultrasound is obviously useful to both ensure that, a, that there is a response and to um, help guide our patients with the timing intercourse. Mm -hmm. um, do, is metformin indicated earlier in the obese phenotype? That's a good question as well, and it depends how, what you mean by obese, because um, uh, the metformin studies have, that have been published around the world and from different countries um, have uh, enrolled women of very different body weights. So our studies in the UK have tended to have a BMI cutoff of around about 30, whereas the North American studies, the BMI on average is around about 38 in the metformin studies. Right. So it depends upon the dose that you're using, the duration that you're using it for. Um, uh, we recently published the, the latest Cochrane review on the use of metformin, and it has some benefit, but relatively limited benefit in reality. Um, it's not the panacea that it was once thought to be. So metformin has a role, particularly in those women who have um, uh, defined impaired glucose tolerances assessed by an oral glucose tolerance test or an elevated HbA1c. Um, but for most women with polycystic ovary syndrome, metformin has relatively little uh, benefit. Right. So uh, this is my final question. Do you think there should be a cutoff of weight uh, or BMI before women receive uh, fertility yeah. treatment with the, the condition? It's, it's hotly debated. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, the greater the BMI, the lower the chance of responding to ovulation induction and the greater the risks in the pregnancy, both to the baby and mum, so increased risk of miscarriage, certain congenital abnormalities, and the obstetrical problems that everybody's familiar with, gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, and problems with delivering the baby. So in the UK, um, health service funding for ovulation induction is only actually provided for women who have a BMI of less than 30. Some people think that's too strict um, and is removing autonomy or women's rights to having treatment. It's very but strict when, with the, you know, growing obesity yeah, problem, yeah. it seems to make fertility treatment, it seems to uh, discriminate against yeah. uh, women with a high BMI, particularly when you know they're in the lower socioeconomic yes. group and yes. uh, disadvantaged in other yes. ways. Yes. Mm. But I suppose it's our duty also to try and take a more holistic approach mm. um, and also to appreciate that if you are trying to treat a woman with a BMI of 35, um, or greater than, and I would actually say, incidentally, that I think 35 is a, is a pretty good cutoff. Mm. 30 may be being too strict, 35 is a better cutoff. Um, but some, some studies have actually shown a halving in the chance of getting pregnant if your BMI goes up to 35 from 30. So, you know, it does, does make a difference. And our obstetrical colleagues don't always thank us when they're having to look after some of these problems. Yes, Absolutely. it's opening a, a big, big debate because in the world of fertility medicine, we treat women with all sorts of major medical problems who previously wouldn't have been, been able to conceive, and now we get them pregnant through IVF with serious lung or heart problems and all sorts of other things. So uh, we have to work in collaboration with our colleagues in obstetrics to ensure that there's a plan before they embark upon the fertility treatment. 
Mm, and that periconceptual yeah. counselling is yes. so important. Yeah. Well, Adam, I would love to dive into that with you more, but um, I know uh, you are very keen to get to a session, so thank you so much for joining us on COG today. That was Adam Balin, a reproductive endocrinologist and gynaecologist from Leeds in the UK, talking about polycystic ovarian syndrome and the recently released international guideline on the diagnosis and management of peacocks, which he helped develop. Next up on COG, Journal Club. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Ted Weaver. Hello, how are you? Yeah, a bit of a break for us, Ted. Yeah, it's been nice, but I'm sure that people would rather lie on the beach than, than listen to us droning on on COG. However, New Year's bring new opportunities. So today we're going to talk a bit about polycystic ovarian syndrome. There's some relatively new guidelines that have been released from an international body, which is actually funded by Australia's NH and MRC. Uh, so I'm very excited to be talking about those on Journal Club today. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think it's quite an important guideline with there's lots of Australian luminaries in it, including you know, people like you know, Rob Norman and um, Luke Rombouts and Michael Costello. I think they're, that's all good. The other thing I think that's important about this guideline is I think it's been probably true to say that the management of infertile women with polycystic ovarian syndrome has been fairly haphazard and I think this guideline does quite a lot to bring best evidence and clinical expertise to this area of practice but also takes into account consumer preference which is clearly important and I think that's you know big part of medicine now is and certainly part of evidence-based medicine is you know factoring in consumer preference into our clinical decisions. So I think it's quite a useful guideline because I think lots of the other guidelines have lacked quite a lot of sort of the process around evidence-based medicine. And I think this guideline fills a gap for that. It was published in Human Reproduction Open um, just at the start, at the very start of this year. So it's incredibly recent. It's hot off the press. Hot off the press, yeah, which is useful. Yeah, look, I was quite impressed when I read the methodology. It was an enormous undertaking. As I said, the NHMRC funded uh, the project and it involved 37 societies uh, and organisations which represented 71 countries and they engaged in a 15-month process. And we're looking specifically uh, at the management of infertility aspect of it today. So the title is Evidence Summaries and Recommendations from the International Evidence-Based Guideline for the Assessment and Management of Polycystic Ovary Syndrome, Assessment and Treatment of Infertility. And as always, I will have a link to that on the Podbean website, but the group that got together and formulated this guideline actually released five separate algorithms. Um, So this is algorithm number five that we're going to look at, Um, but there also is an algorithm around diagnosis and management and lifestyle management and several other aspects of PCOS. For me, Ted, when they sort of step through, it's it's really beautifully written because it steps through the evidence uh, available for each of the aspects of fertility management that we use in PCOS. And interestingly, when the authors graded the evidence, for the most part, the evidence that's available to them is medium to low quality, with very little high quality evidence available on, on the management of PCOS. And I guess for a condition that affects 5 to 15% of women, that really quite stunned me. Yeah, I agree, and I, but the, I think that's where the guideline does fill in a, a big gap in our in our knowledge and practice because of of just that fact that a lot of the stuff that we've used in the past to guide women has been evidence has been of poor quality, and I think this 
this is this is where this paper fills in a significant gap. So the the big ticket item for me is that letrozole is now the first line pharmacological treatment for ovulation induction in women with PCOS uh, with anovulatory infertility because it does the best to improve pregnancy and live birth rates. Letrozole is, of course, an aromatase inhibitor and it prevents the conversion of androgens to estrogens within the ovary. Overall, it improves when compared to... And this is what I really liked about this guideline is it looks at the evidence for letrozole compared to clomiphene, yeah. uh, letrozole compared to ovarian drilling, letrozole compared to clomiphene and metformin and looks at the evidence for each of those comparisons. Yeah, and I, I, I think that, as you said before, that really underlines the rigour that, that they've gone to in, in compiling this guideline. But it's interesting when you look at, the, at one of the other things that we're going to consider today, the ovulation induction in polycystic ovarian syndrome, which was produced by the Society of ONG in Canada. Um, it's guideline number 362 for them in their, um, in their recommendations uh, which I th- think this was published just before this, um, um, the international guideline, they recommend clomiphene citrate as first-line treatment for ovulation induction and not letrozole, although they do acknowledge in the beginning of, of the Canadian um, guideline that there is, um, we've got increased knowledge on the use, the efficacy and safety of aromatase inhibitors, of which letrozole, of course, is one. Um, but it's interesting how... It sort of struck me that that an international consensus group recommends one thing, and then a, then a society recommends um, the status quo, and then you know it'll be interesting to see if the Canadians decide to change their guideline based on this new international guideline. Yeah, that was interesting because that's the first time they've updated that since two thousand and ten, yeah. and uh, we can we can see when we look at the two side by side the. Um, the advice is is contradictory. Yes, and so, and I guess some of that's going to become of it's going to be get down to cost and availability of drugs, and and I think it's it's reasonable to think that we're going to be using um, these drugs off label. Um, you know that they're not they're not been approved for use, or most um, the drug company itself doesn't have, they've not been approved for use in ovulation induction, but of course they have a big role to play in that. Um, but I think before we, you know, talk um, get to that, I think that just again, the input, both guidelines stress the importance of, of weight loss of trying to get people to have a body mass index of less than 35 um, kilograms per meter squared, and you know, it's it's always disheartening when you're working in pregnancy care in Australia to see women who have BMI, you know, BMI's, you know, somewhat in excess of, of 35 kilograms per meter squared who've undergone fertility treatment at the hands of some practitioner and then that practitioner it seems to have paid scant heed to the woman's obesity managed to get the woman pregnant and then um, dump her on on a you know in a you know hospital service for care recognizing that uh, you know we all know what the problems in with obesity in pregnancy are and i think it's really incumbent on our colleagues to to practice um you know, ethically in this area, and if people, um, you know, are significantly obese or even morbidly obese, that really should be an exclusion for them for um, for fertility um, treatment. So that's my particular soapbox today, but I think it's it's incredibly relevant, um, and we've all seen bad outcomes for women with you know significant obesity in pregnancy, where someone has um, connived to get them pregnant. 
or to help them get pregnant? Yeah, I think it's a really difficult area because obviously as women are getting older as they come to have their families, age affecting fertility, obesity is one of the metabolic aspects of uh, PCOS. And so uh, some might argue that discriminating against women because of their weight uh, and making sure they can't have a family is perhaps not the way to go. I think what's interesting is this guideline attempted to address it as a clinical question and uh, towards the end of the evidence summary they ask the question in women with PCOS what is the effectiveness of lifestyle interventions compared to bariatric surgery for improving fertility and adverse outcomes and the summary was we did not find any evidence in women with PCOS to answer the question and therefore the literature is reviewed narratively It then goes on to sort of outline the difficulties around bariatric surgery with uh, some malabsorption syndromes and psychological syndromes, including disordered eating, and the problems that they can create in subsequent pregnancies. I really love that the group has tried to address this exact issue. Bariatric surgery improves weight loss and can improve comorbidities associated with PCOS, However, evidence in relation to fertility and pregnancy outcomes is limited. So it's a watch this space uh, kind of area. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, and I think we've all seen women who've had bariatric surgery who've managed to, who managed to become pregnant. And then sometimes those pregnancies can be very difficult because of um, you know, the malabsorption syndromes that, that, that they can have and the, you know, keeping up with the, with the nutritional requirements of the pregnancy. I agree. It's 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 a it's, a, it's an area that that's of much contention, and whilst we don't want to discriminate necessarily against women, equally we've got to be um, mindful of the, of the risks that that pregnancy might pose to the, the morbidly obese woman, but which is but one part of um, of PCOS, of course, and then there's all the other other parts of of management. Um, I just wanted to mention also because I thought you'd be you'd have something to say. The guidelines suggest that lap ovarian surgery, usually ovarian drilling, uh, is second line to pharmacological management. It's second line along with gonadotropins. Um, But interestingly, the evidence summary suggests that ovarian drilling is as effective as letrozole in ovulation and pregnancy rate. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, yeah, I, I think I think it probably does have a place, but what sort of place? And I'm sure that the methodology that people use for doing ovarian drilling may vary. And there's always a risk that in people with low ovarian reserve, that that ovarian drilling could, you know, perhaps um, um, have some harm there. The older I get, the more I think that we're better off not operating on patients if we've got um, methods of treatment that that are going to provide good outcomes for those patients without them necessarily having to suffer the, the morbidity of laparoscopic surgery. Safe, you know, I realise it is safe and that and the, the chance of significant morbidity is low, but it does happen. So I, I am in two minds about that. I think that, yes, it has its place and there'd be certainly some patients that would want to have that who would be looking at, a, at a, essentially a quick fix for their, um, uh, for their problem. And it may offer that. But, um, again, I think it's easier to take a tablet than to have an operation in in lots of ways. Yeah, I agree. And from the summary of the evidence, the main downside of letrozole uh, appears to be 
increase fatigue and dizziness, particularly uh, when compared to clomiphene citrate. So I guess when you compare that main side effect uh, compared to the complications of surgery that we normally quote, uh, like injury to other organs, like your bladder and your bowel, um, some fatigue and dizziness is certainly the lesser of two evils. Yeah, I'm sure it does have its place, but you know, then you look again, look at look at the other, at other evidence that they quote, and they say that the you know the place of, of using clomiphene plus metformin um, for ovulation induction was actually better than than laparoscopic ovarian surgery for a live birth rate, but there was no difference for pregnancy rate per patient, multiple pregnancy rate or miscarriage rate. So there's, again, I think where the place of metformin is, is itself is still um, a little bit contentious too. And relative to BMI, it really is a fascinating mm. read, this, mm. uh, this entire yeah. summary, because it really steps through mm. individual comparisons um, and suggests, you know, the I guess the nuance and art mm. of this kind of fertility mm. treatment that some, it's not a one-size-fits-all, no. uh, some treatments are better for different yeah. patient groups. And I guess that, that that's part of it. So, again, I think that's why um, in treating these patients it probably is reasonable mm. that, that, that people do have some sort of special interest in the area because I think that, that women will get better treatment overall. Um, which leads on, I think, I guess, quite nicely to the third paper that, that we were looking at for this, which is um, about gut biome and the difference in that gut biome that's associated with not only polycystic ovarian syndrome, but in women who've also got polycystic ovarian morphology. That is, they've, they've got signs on their ovaries of got a polycystic appearance without necessarily having all the features of polycystic ovarian syndrome. But this was a a paper that, that was published in the Journal of Clinical uh, Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. So it was published in 2018. And they made the point that PCOS is, is a common endocrine disorder in women of reproductive age with a worldwide incidence somewhere between 5 and 15%. And they looked at gut microbiome in women with, with PCOS and found that women who had definite PCOS that these women had a reduction in overall species richness or alpha diversity of the gut, micro, the gut microbiome compared with that of healthy women. And they found also that the study found that the biodiversity of the microbiome strongly correlated with hyperandrogenism. It wasn't a, a massive sample size. They had 48 healthy women, 42 women uh, with polycystic ovarian morphology, so polycystic ovaries on ultrasound essentially and uh, 73 women who had PCOS using the Rotterdam criteria um, and they analysed uh, rectal swabs, fecal microbial swabs using 16S ribosomal RNA gene sequencing. Yeah, so I just thought, I just thought the, the, the summary was interesting where it demonstrated that hyperandrogenism was correlated with changes in gut microbiome in women with PCOS and they, what they postulated that androgens might be an important factor in shaping gut microbiome and changes in gut microbiome may influence the development and pathology of PCOS. And so um, they wondered whether treating people with PCOS with androgen antagonists might result in, in changes in the gut microbiome and improvement of PCOS metabolic phenotype. So, you know, I think it's opened up lots of areas of inquiry 
and again, just demonstrates, I think, the importance of gut microbiome in overall health and how much of, of, about it we don't know. What did you think about it, Rachel? Yeah, I, it really highlights to me a burgeoning area of science uh, that I wish I understood differently. I wish I understood better. Um, they talk about alpha and beta levels of uh, diversity, and there is significantly higher diversity in women without PCOS. Um, and it looks like, and, and interestingly, I think you mentioned the stepwise uh, reduction. So there's more diversity in women without PCOS. There's sort of intermediate um, diversity in women with uh, PCOM, which is the, the ovarian morphology of PCOS, but not the clinical syndrome. Um, and then reduced diversity again in women who have the syndrome with hyperandrogenism. And so then when they, as you said, when they compared um, the serum testosterone and free testosterone, they saw that hyperandrogenism was associated with reduced diversity, with lower biodiversity in the gut microbiome. And so while this isn't causative, we can't, there's not enough information to say it's causative, there certainly is a correlation and it looks like much more work needs to be done in this area to understand it better. The authors talked about options for treatment uh, like probiotics. I mean, I guess the other area of science that I'm very interested in is fecal transplant and they reference some mouse models uh, here that where a mouse had undergone fecal transplant and developed the syndrome uh, similar to PCOS. So I think it's a really interesting area uh, that just needs a lot more work done. Yeah, I think so. And that I, I think it's interesting reading through all the different bacteria that they, that, that they can isolate and, and the associations with those, those various bacteria. Some with, um, you know, for instance, there's, a, there's a one called Bacillus coprophilus, which is, um, I think coprophilus is the Latin word for poo-loving, um, was, was reported to be higher in obese individuals and people with type 2 diabetes and glucose intolerance had greater numbers of, of a species called blautia. And so it, it's just interesting to look, to look that these, there are these associations between these, these, these different bacteria and, and different um, clinical syndromes in people. And so I agree with you. I just think it, it's, it's interesting to speculate about if we changed the gut microbiome in some way whether that would lead to, it would help to mitigate some of the symptoms of PCOS. So again, just another area of research. The the quality of life and psychological aspects are really uh, important features of the syndrome, um, which I guess have been under-addressed in the literature to now. But many authors are starting to try and address those things, including uh, these ones, uh, Dr. Varanasi, and Sabasinghe and other co-authors from the Department of Medicine at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. This is an Australian paper, yeah, it was published in ANSJOG in late in December 2018 and comes from a group in Melbourne from the Department of Medicine at Royal Melbourne Hospital and also the Department of Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. And what they were, what they were looking at was... They were talking about again the the, the um, commonness of PCOS, and um, they were talking about different sets of criteria that had been created for the diagnosis of PCOS, um, and they pointed out that that might lead to overdiagnosis and and potential problems 
with women being over-managed and, um, and that having an impact on the woman's quality of life. And so they found the, most, that the three most common reactions to a diagnosis of PCOS were unhappy, worried, scared, confused, and they were confused about the diagnosis and reported that doctors usually didn't explain PCOS properly. And they thought that the fear of infertility was the most distressing. And they're also worried about menstrual dysfunction and hirsutism, but they still reckon that the fear of infertility was the most common feature that reduced health-related quality of life. So I agree that I think it's important that we do um, diagnose these women accurately. It's interesting just anecdotally, I saw a woman in clinic last week who, who was 35 having a first baby who had absolutely no troubles with conceiving but had been told at quite a young age that she had polycystic ovarian disease based on an ultrasound appearance of her ovaries and she'd never had any trouble with hyperandrogenism at all and, again, no other features of PCOS but had been labelled as PCOS based on one ultrasound, which was incorrect. With the new international guidelines looking at the diagnosis of PCOS, they actually steer away from using ultrasound diagnosis in yes. women in the first eight years of their menses because it's common for women to have polycystic ovarian morphology in that time. Yes. The point of that is to try and avoid overdiagnosis in this group. Yes, I think so. Um, and to avoid the kinds of things that you're talking about, the devastation that, you know, for women thinking that their fertility might be affected at a very young age when perhaps they don't have a partner or it's not in their life plan to have babies. And, you know, the five-minute medicine that women have available to them with many primary carers doesn't really have time to delve into those those issues in any sort of depth until they come to see a gynaecologist some years later, surprised that they've fallen yes, pregnant. Yes, I agree. Uh, so we'll have a link. We will have a link to these papers on the website. I should just also mention the work of Dr. Jackie Boyle, uh, who is an Australian OMG, uh, and she's done a lot of work with regards to the translation of this evidence and these guidelines into a user-friendly and accessible medium. So she's been doing a lot of work on the Ask PCOS app, which is a free app available on your mobile phone. I've had a look at it. It's very stunning to look at and easy to use and well worth recommending to your patients uh, if they have any questions about PCOS. It sort of steps through lots of the common issues around PCOS and is thoroughly based on the latest international evidence-based guidelines. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think Jackie's to be commended because she's done some of the original work on, on PCOS in, in, in Indigenous women in remote areas of Australia. So quite an interesting research base that she's had. The other thing, of course, that it's um, soapbox time again, I guess, is how we probably fail numbers of these women in the sense that um, we don't provide good interprofessional team care for these women, recognising that some of these women have um, quite complex needs, but both endocrine needs, gynaecological needs and other needs. And um, I think it's pretty high time that, that we really looked at dealing with these women in a better way, having good access to other health professionals that they might need for part of their management, so to reduce fragmentation of their care. Yeah, it seems like a good opportunity to practice uh, some preventative health care, some opportunistic preventative health care, uh, rather than waiting for there to be a problem to solve. Yeah, exactly. We have to get better at being than just being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. 
as we've talked about before. So, next month's episode of COG will be on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women's health. Uh, my co-host next month is Dr Kiana Brown, an ONG from Darwin in the Northern Territory, and together we'll be talking to Dr Jackie Boyle, who has done an enormous amount of research in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women's health here in Australia. Yes, that's the same Jackie Boyle we mentioned as being behind the Ask PCOS app, so she's a very busy woman. That's next month on COG. If you'd like to find any of the articles from Journal Club, you can find a link to them on cog.podbean.com. Please, if you get a moment, do rate us on iTunes. It helps other people find our podcast. Thanks for joining us on Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynaecology. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Rachel. Ciao.